Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, I'm going to meet the physicist Michael Pepper, who is calling for the Stark effect to be renamed because of the leading role played by Johannes Stark in the persecution of Jewish scientists in 1930s and 1940s Germany. But first, Margaret Harris and Philip Ball cut through the hype as they chat about the burgeoning quantum computing industry. I'm a practical sort of person, so for me, the most exciting aspect of quantum technology is seeing these previously esoteric quantum properties find applications outside the laboratory. For quantum computers, this commercialization process is happening a little slower than it is for other types of quantum technology, but it is happening, at least if you believe the companies involved in it. Here to separate the quantum hype from the quantum reality is the science writer Philip Ball, whose article in the December issue of Physics World is entitled setting the scene for the quantum marketplace. Hi, Phil. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So when we're talking about commercializing quantum computers, you know, who's involved in this effort? What are some of the major players? Well, the big IT giants uh, that we're all familiar with uh, generally have some kind of foot in the field. So uh, people like IBM, Google, Hewlett-Packard, Microsoft, Honeywell, they're all interested in developing quantum computing in some respects, and some further than others. So IBM and Google are, are probably sort of making more news at the moment because they have working devices uh, that they've had for several years now, um, that, and they, they are kind of in front in terms of how many qubits they have. Um, that's quantum bits. We'll talk maybe a little bit later on about how important that is, but certainly that's one measure of how big these devices are. So they're um, uh, certainly making progress. And then there are lots of little startups. I mean, I say little, they're not as big as IBM or Google, but, you know, some of them are really attracting serious venture capital now. So uh, there are people like the, the company INQ um, in Maryland in the, in the US is uh, making quite a stir. There's uh, Rigetti in California that is also already producing devices. There's D-Wave, the Canadian company that uh, claimed at least um, several years back to have the first commercial quantum computer and is still making them. Uh, and there are, you know, dozens of others. Uh, it's hard to keep track of how many uh, now exist uh, or how many have actually got products and how many are just kind of talking the talk. Um, but they are starting to spring up all over the world in China and in India, in Europe. Um, so there's a huge amount of interest and activity and investment going on just at the moment. And what kind of sort of platforms do they use for their qubits? Is the field starting to coalesce around any particular system rather than others, or is that really not happening yet? No, interestingly, it, it's not. Um, it's still, I think, regarded as an open question what the leading technology is going to be that's going to enable quantum computing. Um, IBM and Google are using so-called superconducting quantum bits. Uh, and these are little rings of superconducting material that can um, uh, store information in the supercurrents that are in, in these uh, because the, super, the superconductivity is itself basically a quantum phenomenon. So that clearly works. It's already working. Um, but um, I and Q, for example, are um, developing 
quantum bits made out of trapped ions. So these are individual ions that are trapped in electromagnetic traps, sort of held there, levitating. And each one of those can act as a quantum bit because you can manipulate the electronic states using lasers. So that's a completely different um, sort of basis, hardware basis um, for, for the technology. Other companies, um, uh, particularly some startups, are looking at photonic quantum computers where everything is done in light. So in the, the quantum states, really the polarization states of light are what encode the quantum bits and it's all sent around um, along opt optical fibers or with, with lasers. And then there are other technologies that are still more speculative, but uh, for example, Microsoft is uh, placing its bets on so-called topological quantum computing, where the, the, the problem that they're trying to address is that the quantum bits that exist at the moment are prone to errors. They, random um, uh, interactions or fluctuations can flip a bit, say, from a one to a zero. Um, and this is something that's tricky to deal with in quantum computing. But these topological quantum bits are fundamentally protected from those sorts of errors by their very nature. No one has actually made one yet. Um, but That's it's, a bit of a but, catch. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, I mean, there have been claims uh, that something like this has been seen. There are certainly plenty of ideas for how to make them, but it's still very much at the research stage, but you know, clearly Microsoft at least have decided that in the long run, for the long haul, something that is fundamentally is sort of intrinsically error resistant is likely to scale better as you try to make these devices bigger and bigger. So, you know, there are all sorts of ideas uh, still out there about you know, which is going to be best. And I think it's fair to say that most people are recognizing there isn't necessarily going to be a best. Each different platform will have its strengths and weaknesses, and they may be better suited for different applications. So less uh, beat up Macs and, and VHS than uh, sort of Apple and, and Windows sort of situation. I think it's exactly that. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's any reason to think that one uh, technology is going to displace all the others. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I think, you know, there's and, and this is the challenge, really, for venture capitalists. You know, what what are you going to back? What horse are you going to back? And um, it's uh, recommended, really, to them that, that, you know, they don't put all their eggs in one basket and, and you know, decide this is the technology that's going to crack it, that a wise uh, investor, I think, would invest in perhaps, you know, several different technologies. So this has been quite a hardware focused conversation so far, but there's all, I'd like to mention quantum software as well, because one of the people you spoke to for your article in Physics World is a chap by the name of Yanni Gamvros, who's head of business development at a quantum software company. Um, I think it's called QCWare, based in Silicon Valley. And he said that there's more potential for exaggeration or quantum hype on the software side because, quote, everybody can still claim to have a really strong algorithm while very little can be tested or proven. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, that, that was a, a very interesting quote. And, you know, you can see his point because we're not yet at the stage where quantum computers can clearly do things better than classical computers can, can do. Um, but they're getting to that stage. And some claims have been made that for very specific problems, some even the quantum computers we have today, you know, might be starting to outperform classical computers. And so the problem you have then is that people can claim that their algorithm does better than classical ones, but you can't run it on a classical machine to, to test it. So, you know, it is ripe for this sort of uh, hype. So I can see what he means. But it's interesting that there is a lot of work going on uh, in the software because, you know, this is the thing that's sometimes overlooked in all the excitement about these gleaming machines that we see. They're only going to be useful if we have 
software to run on them and you know how you convert a, a, a sort of classical computing problem into quantum terms in a way that's going to make the optimal use of what quantum gives you to do it better. That's not, it, there's no general way of doing that. It's not obvious how to do that. So developing software that is actually going to make good use of the, the, these um, these devices is going to be, you know, a, a, a significant challenge at the moment. We only know how to use, really, how to use quantum computers to solve a, a limited number of problems. They they have nothing like the versatility of classical computers, and so there, there is a lot of activity going into really thinking about how you can develop ways, develop algorithms that are going to exploit what quantum has to offer. Now, it sounds a little bit like, you know, the, the, at some point, the, the field of quantum computing is going to pass out of the hands of, of physicists and into what you might call quantum computer programmers or quantum technologists, um, much the same way as, I don't know, MRI machines have, you know, there's still plenty of physicists working on MRI, but it's also passed out of the hands of physicists and clinicians. How close are we to that actually happening? Some would say that's happening already um, in, in the sense that we know that in principle, quantum computing works, that, that, that's clear. And so, you know, you could say the rest is engineering just to make these devices bigger and bigger. And, you know, a big part of that, that question of scaling it up to bigger devices definitely is engineering. So what, what's interesting is that there isn't a clean split at the moment, and I'm not sure there's ever going to be, because one of the things that certainly I've always found interesting about quantum computing is that the fundamental issues, the basic science, the basic questions really in quantum mechanics and the applications, how to make use of those, they're not cleanly split, that actually there's an interaction between them. And I think input from physicists who really know their quantum mechanics is going to be, certainly for the foreseeable future, it's going to be really important, particularly for this problem that I mentioned of error correction, because, you know, it turns out that the reason that's hard is it's not an engineering problem, really. It's, it's uh, a basic property of quantum systems that you can't correct errors in the same way as you can in classical devices. Um, in, in short, it's because in classical machines, you can just keep multiple copies of every qubit. And then if one of them accidentally flips, you can just compare it with all the others and take a sort of majority rule to, to decide what it should be. You can't do that in quantum computing because you can't make copies. That's a fundamental property of quantum mechanics called the no cloning principle. Um, so, you know, already the, these, these, you know, deep seated fundamental issues in quantum mechanics pose engineering challenges for actually building the devices. And I think that's going to continue. So there's going to have to be a continuing dialogue between the, the fundamentals and the people trying to build the machines. And I want to talk about, um, before we finish, just a couple of very recent developments in quantum computing. One that happened just before you handed in the article and went to press, which was did in fact involve error correction, and one that came after, which we'll get onto in a minute. Um, there was a, a major advance, I think, in sort of fault-tolerant error correction at one of these these companies you mentioned. Um, well, yes, uh, that um, the the company IonQ working on these trapped iron uh, quantum computers reported that they they had a process, an algorithm, really, for doing error correction using just thirteen quantum bits um, to essentially correct the errors. And you know, it, it's been thought, it's certainly been discussed in the past, that doing error correction is actually going to need 
maybe a thousand physical quantum bits, qubits, in order to get a single qubit that is a so-called logical qubit that is completely error corrected. So it sounds as though, you know, doing it with just 13 is a big advance. And in fact, Google has also recently reported uh, using superconducting quantum bits, they've reported error correction using, I can't remember the exact number, but it was, you know, a few dozen. So it was, it was very low. Um, but <laughs> what this kind of brought, but both work, uh, both papers, what they brought home was that error correction is not an all or nothing thing. Basically, you're talking about degrees of error correction, how well you can correct errors. And, you know, both of these algorithms that we have at the moment, they show that it's possible, but they're not correcting errors to the degree that you'd really need to, you know, basically crack the problem. Um, you know, you just have fewer errors or they happen less often. So it's a matter of degree. So, you know, I think that's, that's really the issue that I think people still feel that you're going to need, you know, hundreds, perhaps thousands of qubits before we have a machine that really is, is fully error tolerant. So we're not at that stage yet. So the other thing that, that happened recently, I think this happened just after, uh, after the article went to press, IBM unveiled a new chip named Eagle that has more than 100 qubits. I think it's 127. It's the first to hit three figures. Is that a significant milestone given that you're talking about needing possibly 1,000 qubits to, to make one functioning logical qubit? Well, perhaps I'd say it's a, it's a significant psychological milestone. You know, and as you say, it gets us into three digits, and that's really nice. But, you know, it's, it's part of a, a, a general trend that is going to be a gradual thing. And IBM have set themselves, you know, quite, quite an ambitious goal, actually, that uh, they're saying that next year they're working on a chip that uh, is, is going to have 433 qubits. And in 2023, they're aiming for a device they're calling the Condor, which is going to have 1,121. So it's going to be have over 1,000 qubits. And again, that's you know going to be a psychological milestone. But you know, people working in the field say, well, this is kind of the, the, the rate of progress, given what we've seen already. This is kind of what we'd expected. You know, it's not a sudden leap upwards. You're going to see these sorts of figures, you know, appearing. And it sounds as though Google, although they haven't said so much about where they are, it sounds as though they're probably on the same track. I suspect INQ is on the same track. So we're going to, I'm quite sure, to, to, to see this happening. It's, I have to say that, you know, each, each time it's not a straightforward matter. You have all kinds of new engineering problems to solve, in particular, how you sort of pack in all the wiring to every qubit to make sure that it's individually addressable. So there were significant engineering challenges in the way. But this is, I think, very much in line with what people are expecting to see, that you're going to get these sort of figures appear. And certainly, you know, as I said, if we've got a thousand qubits, you know, some people feel, well, that's the kind of, you know, stage at which we really can start to hope that we can see some some strong error correction um, and error tolerance. But already, um, you know, again, it's not a matter of all or nothing. Already there are algorithms for coping with errors. So rather than correcting them, actually working with them and perhaps undoing some of them by just keeping careful track of things. So there are all sorts of ideas around for how to deal with errors. We're not going to necessarily have to wait until we've got a thousand qubits before you can do anything about it. So apart from more qubits and better error correction, incrementally better error correction, what do you expect to see next? I mean, this is a really big question for investors because a lot of investors have, you know, the more enlightened among them have maybe a five to 10 year time frame. A lot are looking for a fairly quicker return than that. You know, is this really a viable field for, for the near term investors? 
If I were an investor, um, then I would feel that it probably is. You know, I think that um, the, the, it's suddenly got to the stage where, you know, there are billions of uh, pounds or dollars going into this. So governments are investing at that sort of level. And I think that is a recognition. It's not hype. It's a recognition that this is going to be an important technology. Um, it's going to be important, you know, not just because it will give us more powerful computers, but because it will integrate with other quantum technologies like quantum crypto cryptography um, that's going to send data more securely. Um, so, you know, and and there are other quantum technologies more generally that, you know, are, are coming on board and that are going to uh, play into this, this this market as well. So I think there is a real sense that, uh, that, that something is happening. There is a danger of hype, though, and I think the particular danger is the, the sending out the message that quantum computers are going to do everything, you know, better and more quickly than classical computers can do. And as we've said already, it's by no means certain that that's going to be the case. There are certain things that quantum computers intrinsically can do well. Amongst those are optimization problems, just, you know, finding the, the best solution to a problem that has many potential solutions. That's the kind of problem that is particularly um, uh, relevant to things like financial markets. So, you know, financial companies are, um, are really interested in, in uh, finding out what's going on and getting a foot in the door. I think we're also going to see these devices start to become really uh, genuinely useful for quantum simulation for um, being able to simulate the properties of molecules and perhaps eventually of materials at the quantum level, which is something that's that's still very difficult and computationally costly to do with classical machines because they just don't have that physics built in, whereas quantum computers do. So, you know, I think those are going to be the kinds of areas that we initially see um, applications starting to appear in. Whether quantum computers will be more generally useful really does remain to be seen. And I think it's really important that people know, you know, don't that they shouldn't be holding their breath for a quantum laptop to come along. <laughs> does all the fancy things and all the fancy graphics that, uh, you know, that, that uh, the machines do at the moment. It's not clear that that at the moment um, is an aim. But quantum AI, quantum machine learning is also an area where it, it that could become important, you know, particularly because machine learning generally is just everywhere. And there are some advantages that quantum can bring. So I think that, too, is an area that's going to start coming online in the next few years. Phil Ball, thanks very much. Thank you. That was Physics World's Margaret Harris in conversation with the science writer Philip Ball. Ball's article is available on the Physics World website and also appears in the December 2021 issue of Physics World magazine. This issue focuses on quantum science and technology, and more articles about this booming field will appear on the website throughout December. These include a review that I've done of the book Quantum Computing, How It Works and How It Could Change the World, which was by Amit Katwala. Although a slim volume at 160 pages, I thought that Katwala covered the essentials of quantum computing and cryptography in a way that was accessible to someone with very little background knowledge of physics. As I read the book, I imagined that I was a potential investor trying to decide whether to back quantum technology. And I think Katwala gave me just enough information to start my own investigation into quantum computing.
For his book, Katwala did speak to many people in the industry. And my favorite quote comes from a quantum researcher at Google who points out that the industry is nowhere near the point where companies are competing against each other for the favor of consumers. Instead, this researcher said, it's our technology against nature. Also in December's physics world, Michael Allen examines the commercial potential of quantum gravity sensors. There are interviews with Elena Wisby, chief executive of Oxford Quantum Circuits, as well as with the head of KETS Quantum Security, Chris Irvin. Careers editor Laura Hiscott is on hand to look at the job opportunities in this area, while our business columnist James McKenzie writes about the quantum tech showcase that took place in London last month. So for all things quantum, check out the December 2021 issue of Physics World magazine. Coming up on the podcast, we're going to talk about a dark chapter in the history of physics in Germany and what can be done today to honor Jewish scientists who were persecuted by the Nazis. Born in 1874, Johannes Stark was a German physicist who made important contributions to the development of modern physics. Students of chemistry and physics will know him for co-discovering the Stark effect, which is a splitting of the spectral lines of an atom that's caused by an external electric field. Stark was also an early supporter of Adolf Hitler, a member of the Nazi party and a leading proponent of the anti-Semitic German physics movement. After Germany's defeat in the Second World War, Stark was declared a major offender, and he received a four-year suspended sentence from a denazification court. I'm joined down the line from University College London by the physicist Michael Pepper, who is calling for the Stark effect to be renamed, considering Stark's role in the persecution of Jewish scientists. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. So, Michael, can you give us an idea about the German physics movement? What, what was it all about, and how did it affect uh, Jewish scientists? Well, it, it started off in, in the intense and anti-Semitic nationalism, which took a, a large part of the German population after the First World War. In particular, two physicists, Stark and Lenard, took the lead in this. They joined the Nazi party at a very early stage when it had its electoral support was round about the sort of one to two percent. And of course, it went up enormously during the Depression years. But they were, they were convinced, actually, that there was a racial element to scientific discovery. And in particular, they were very angered by theoretical physicists, in particular Einstein, because after relativity, Einstein received a great deal of publicity became an international celebrity. And they couldn't really understand this. They actually objected to the whole notion of theoretical physics, that you could sit at a desk with a pencil and paper, pen and paper, and actually derive fundamental laws. They felt that you had to actually do the experiment. They were, they were very good experimentalists. I wouldn't take that away from them. And in particular, Lenard was much angered by the fact that he discovered the photoelectric effect whereby if you shine light onto a metal, 
then the electrons which are emitted uh, basically have an energy which depends on the frequency of the uh, light. He uh, found this experimentally, and Einstein explained it, and of course it was one of the cornerstones of the development of, of quantum theory, and he was very angered by this. And essentially, they, they felt that theoretical physics was somehow undramatic. And therefore, if it wasn't undramatic, what did it have to be? Well, Einstein was Jewish. Bohr was regarded as Jewish. In fact, he had Jewish, one Jewish parent. Uh, and so they split up into experimental physics, which was Germanic and good, and theoretical physics, which was Jewish and bad, and represented by a convoluted mathematical thinking which didn't lead itself to a transparent physical understanding. That essentially is what they were saying. And therefore, in line with Nazi theory, the proponents of Jewish physics had to be purged. They had to be removed from national life completely. And so that was their point of view. And they, they propounded this throughout the 20s and early 30s until the Nazis came to power in 1933. And of course, by virtue of their prestige as Nobel laureates, they did actually enhance the Nazi message uh, among people who, who took an interest in Nobel laureates and science and so on and so forth. So you mentioned Einstein. He, he of course, left Germany for the United States. Yes. I would imagine that this German physics concept really took its toll on Jewish scientists in Germany, particularly when the, when the Nazis took power. Well, one of their first measures, a couple of months after achieving power, was an inappropriately named <coughs> law for the restoration of a professional civil service in which Jews were, were dismissed. And civil service encompassed government hospitals and universities. So that actually removed many of the Jewish scientists who were active in universities. And there was a first flood of, of immigration from Germany. Subsequently, they were made head of institutions by, by the Nazi government. And then uh, if there were still Jewish scientists there who weren't covered by the civil service law, they, they had them dismissed. But they also embarked on a campaign against theoretical physics in general. Uh, and they sort of they extended the so-called inverted commas Jewish label uh, to Heisenberg, for example, who was repeatedly attacked as a white Jew as was uh, another leading physicist, von Laue, uh, who was very eminent in the field of X-ray crystallography. And they were called white Jews. And in fact, uh, they, were, they were basically received um, quite a degree of um, sort of persecution. I mean, they weren't actually ejected from their positions, but in the Nazi press. Indeed, uh, actually, Heisenberg's mother, by some strange coincidence, knew Himmler's mother, Himmler, the head of the SS, and actually phoned him up and said, could you actually call off the campaign against Heisenberg? And he was then told that, OK, you can talk about relativity and you can discuss it, but you can't mention Einstein's name in this context. So eventually the regime came to realise that, in fact, quantum mechanics and relativity were very important for the development of science. So people were allowed to discuss them uh, and write about them and work on them but they couldn't in print or in speech mention any of the Jewish uh, proponents of this or the discoverers of the phenomena. Yeah. Sommerfeld was the leading light in, of uh, physics in the uh, University of Munich. Uh, um, and he went along to the university authorities and said, look here, you know, you've severely damaged theoretical physics. 
uh, we, we don't have an ability to discuss it anymore in the departments uh, because the, uh, most of the theoretical physicists were, were Jewish and had been dismissed or indeed have left the country. And he was told by the administration, good, we don't want theoretical physics in this institution. So this actually illustrates the essentially the, the mood which Stark and Leonard and the German physics movement engendered. So, Michael, I mentioned that um, that Stark went before a denazification court and um, he was he was found guilty. But ultimately, he didn't go to prison. Um, I believe he sort of retired to, uh, to to his country estate. Why do you think that that these sort of horrible transgressions of people like Stark, scientists like Stark, were almost ignored after the war? Basically, the reason for his suspended prison sentence was grounds of ill health. He was fairly elderly by that stage. But also, ah, there was a, a general sort of mood, actually, that a line should be drawn underneath it because the, um, the Cold War had started. The, the main enemy, Nazi Germany, were receded into history. Uh, and, uh, for example, as you know, the United States took Von Braun and his team, which developed the V2, uh, I'm sure the British government would have loved to put them on trial, but they were whisked off to the US to uh, work on the US space program. So there was a general feeling, actually, that let's move on to other things. And particularly uh, that there were trials going on of, of those who'd actually, um, who'd actually shot people and murdered them. Uh, and they were given a higher priority uh, than people like Stark and Leonard. And it was essentially like that. They, they were removed from any influence in society. And so let's move on to other things. That was the attitude, really. So now here we are in 2021, many, many years after the German physics movement and, and after Stark died. Um, why is it time for a new name for the Stark effect? I, I started this by writing a letter to the Times because I, I saw some letters by physicists at Imperial College and there's a movement there, a committee to reevaluate the contributions of some of the leading lights at Imperial many years ago. There's discussion of a proposal to rename buildings named after T.H. Huxley, who was known as Darwin's Bulldog, one of the founders of the Royal College of Science, which became Imperial College. I, I thought actually that here, uh, and in general, as you know, statues being pulled down because of what people did and what they said. And here, we have an example of, still within living memory, there are people alive who'd actually suffered as a result of the doings of Stark and his colleagues. We have this example of somebody who was actually a criminal who put into effect racialist doctrines, and yet the physics community honours this man by calling the effect the Stark effect. As you know, I mean, it is a tradition in science that you should name effects after the discoverer. And there's no, obviously, uh, intent to change the nation, uh, the notion of the discoverer. It was Stark. But why should we continue to call the effect after this person when we're, we're actually changing the name of buildings and so on? So that was my motivation, actually. And I do think, actually, it can be called electric quantization or something like that, actually. Yeah. And, and, and so the, the Stark effect was discovered independently by an Italian physicist, Antonino Losurdo. And it's actually called the Stark-Losurdo effect in Italy. But by, I suppose, a very dark <laughs> coincidence, Losurdo held similar anti-Semitic views 
as Stark did. And so I suppose that rules uh, Losurdo out in terms of naming the effect. So what should we call the effect? I mean, it sounds like you have an idea um, for what we should call it. Well, uh, just an accurate quantization. I mean, the Stark effect has become more prominent, as you know, it was discovered in atomic physics as a splitting of spectral lines. But uh, with the development of uh, quantum uh, devices uh, and quantum wells for communication purposes, the quantum confined Stark effect has become much more prominent. Indeed, it is a very important effect. And so it's known basically as the quantum confined Stark effect. So I think it is appropriate to consider, should we consider honoring this man? One can't change the past and one shouldn't even try. But nevertheless, we can actually change the future. And so the question is, should we actually continue to honor this man's name? He discovered the effect, certainly. But should we continue to call it the Stark effect? This was not my motivation, actually, in doing this. And Michael, you mentioned that Stark uh, is a Nobel laureate and also uh, Lenard. Um, uh, do, do you think that they should be stripped of their prizes? Uh, to be frank, no, I don't, actually, because uh, the past is the past. We can't alter it. I mean, the only people who try to alter the past in some respects, well, I think it's um, certain aspects of North Korea, but in Stalin's Russia during the purges, you know, there are some quite uh, interesting photographs which actually started off uh, showing about six of the early Bolsheviks together with Lenin at one end and Stalin at the other. And gradually, as the ones in between were purged and executed, so they were taken out the photographs. And, and, and at the end of the day, Stalin and Lenin were the only two together. But because it was quite primitive in those days, they didn't have Photoshop or computers, you get the odd arm and hand and leg left sort of dangling in space. So uh, that's why not is the only um, example of, of uh, attempting to alter history. Of course, in 1984, Orwell... Um, actually did describe that, whereby the past back numbers of newspapers were altered. So if somebody fell out of favor and was purged, all the back numbers were altered to remove uh, their names and their activities. So I don't think it's any point in that. And I think it's, it's fair to say that they did discover it. Uh, but it's the future I'm concerned about, not the past. Well, that's a, that's a fascinating story, uh, Michael. Thanks for, for coming on the podcast to, to talk about Stark. And um, uh, I wish you luck in uh, your campaign to have the, the name changed. Thank you very much for inviting me, Hamish. It would be quite good, actually, if perhaps the Institute of Physics could raise this issue uh, when they meet other international bodies at various meetings. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Michael Pepper, Philip Ball, and Margaret Harris for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester meets researchers at the University of Bath who are part of the open science community, which advocates the sharing of designs for material objects. You can listen to all the stories podcast on the Physics World website, or you can find them at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.